This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is in honor of Chester Townsend, Otis Jeffries, and Ronald Hagen. September 17th, 1969, a fellow team commander, Master Sergeant Ronald Hagen, had been killed, and Staff Sergeant Melvin Morris would lead the effort to retrieve his fallen brother's body. He joins the show to tell us about the incredible story and how a hard but good life in Oklahoma prepared him for that fateful day and how it all culminated in the Medal of Honor. Staff Sergeant Melvin Morris, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast, sir. Um, Okay, I'm glad to be part of this. uh, Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We had a wonderful conversation with my friend John Falkenberry from the Congressional Medal of Honor Society and you know, we are kicking around names and stories to share on this podcast here. So grateful for the amazing work that they do through the society to continue education, continue to share the stories of our heroes who have been awarded our military's most prestigious honor. And Melvin Morris was near the top of that list, sir. And so I am just so thrilled to have you join us uh, all the way from your home in Oklahoma uh, to, to meet with and speak to our listeners today. So first and foremost, sir, just thank you so, so much. You're welcome. So Oakmulgee, Oklahoma. Tell me where that, that is. Huh? Tell me where that is. That is uh, in um, northeastern Oklahoma. That's 35 miles south of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for a reference. Okay. Born January 7th, 1942 in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Staff Sergeant Melvin Morris, what was life in Northeast Oklahoma like in the 40s and 50s and even in the early 60s? Very tough. (laughs) Very tough. You know, I have some good memories, but, you know, it was during that time you had to work. You got to work somewhere. And I stayed with relatives a lot of times. And uh, my grandmother and them, they live on a small farm. And I stayed there most of the time. So I, I did my farm duties. You know, uh, I helped with the planting, the plying, uh, feeding the uh, cattle, uh, swine, uh, the ducks, the chickens. I remember it all. The orchards. But, you know, it was hard life, but it was a good life, though. Up early, you know, crack of dawn before the sun come up. Oh, I shouldn't even mention that because I had to get up, yeah, me and my brother, because we were together most of the time since one year apart. You had to get up in the morning about like four o'clock, put the coal into the heater, start the fire, pot belly heater. I know you heard of them. Yes, sir. Get the fire rolling, and better do it because you're gonna be in trouble. So it was to get up early in the morning, and later on, I always had the milk turned behind behind the stove. So the other thing I had to do, you there? The other thing I had to do was to uh, turn the milk. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I've only ever seen an old butter churn that's in my grandmother's house, and it's really more of a decorative piece than it was a functional piece. Well, you have to sit there and uh, churn that thing till you separate the butter and the milk. And, uh, you know, that was one of my duties. But, you know, you had your duties, and I did them. I, I didn't get in trouble for not doing my work. Yeah. 
Yes, but sir. it was a hard labor, good life. Uh, I imagine hardworking family as well. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your parents, and and you told me before we started recording, your dad was a jack of all trades. So what do you remember most about him? Well, mostly he was. Selvis was a hardworking man. He uh, he loved to hunt and fish. Okay. But he uh, really worked hard, and he mostly did carpentry work. Uh, but you know, he would do it all. And when he was hunting, either fishing, I was right there with him because I loved it too. And so he had taught me a lot about, uh, finding game in the woods. I learned to shoot a rifle at an early age and I was a good shot because we had to bring home the meal, bring home the meat. And we bought we ate a lot of squirrels and rabbits. I'm not ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. It was good food for us, I'm concerned. And a lot of people squeamish about that nowadays. But when the times are tough, you eat what you got. You said it and, was uh, a hard life, but a good life. And then you talked about being a good shot, something that would likely serve you well in life as you grew up and, and life led you to the United States Army. So what does that path look like, sir? Well, you know, that path, we go right back to – Learn to shoot. Being in the woods, I learned uh, to navigate navigation on my own. Uh, I learned how to find games when they were hiding, and that's part of military training to find the enemy. So that really helped me out. Uh, of course, I could swim back then because <laughs> you ever heard of noodling? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we go and you catch catfish with your arm, right? Right, right. We did that. So anyway, we could get the food. And uh, that's the scary part of it, but you have to do it. And uh, so those things I learned were valuable to me when I went into the military. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to the Green Beret, because I had heard that they were more outdoorsy type, uh, secretive, uh, tough guys. And uh, I wanted I wanted that. And I volunteered and I got accepted. And uh, that's how I ended up in the Green Bay. It, it was difficult, but I fooled everyone. I, I graduated. Uh, and then from there on, I just kept kept moving. As the story goes, sir, uh, you know, you said, you know, times are tough, tough life, but a good life. But finding work was probably tough those years. And, and you told me before we recorded, finding work is a, as a minority man in, in those times was, was not easy. The only job I ever had, a job, was working at the bowling alley setting pins. And I think that was about 65 cents an hour. And didn't get that many hours. And it seemed like someone was always trying to hit you with a pin when they were bowling. Because, so I say, no, this is not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So we, we just had enough, me and my brother. And, uh, I say, you know, there were no other jobs. Forget that. It was not. If he wasn't out in the, in the cotton fields or in the pecan bottoms, rough, hard work. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, we did it. But, you know, that we always told ourselves something's got to be better than this. And one thing about not having work is it always leads to trouble. Because most of the time you're hanging out, you're not doing nothing, you're not in school. Uh, 
and then you end up in trouble and you end up in uh, the crossbar motel, which no one wants to go to. Mm. So we knew that too. And uh, so that's one of the things that drove us into the military. Idle hands, right, sir. Idle hands. Idle hands. You're right. It gets you in trouble. Yes, sir. So yeah. your brothers and you get to talking and, and you say, we're going to go down and we're going to take the interest exam. And we're going to see if we can get into the army. But only it, one it, guy got in there. So how's that story play out? Well, they, they tricked me. They decided not to go. And uh, I'm thinking everybody's on the same note. So I'm doing my best to pass my test and get in. And uh, I got into the active army, and and this was before Vietnam cranked up. Mm-hmm. And um, I was got in the army, and I was left. I was a little angry at about four five. But lo and behold, Vietnam came up, and they still had to go because uh, they, uh, even though you were in the uh, National Guard, you know. Yeah, you you'd have to go to active duty when 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 the country calls, and so my brother ended up active duty also. But that's how I got to active duty, and um, the rest of it is you know going and volunteering to go airborne and go uh, volunteer to go to the Green Beret, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how my life started. An airborne man, you spent um, many a day, months, uh, hours training. From where I sit today, only about an hour away down in Fayetteville, Fort Bragg. Uh, I'm up here in Apex, North Carolina, so not too far away from where you spent oh, yeah. a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. I spent 18 years at Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. Ends up Company D, 5th Special Forces. Uh, so when you're in the Army, you mentioned before this draw to the Green Berets, right? Special Forces, guys are outside doing the harder <laughs> things. What would you like so much about that element of it? Well, see... During that time, there wasn't no Green Beret. Mm-hmm. There were what they called the secretive Green Berets, the footlocker berets. But people only knew them as uh, Sneaky Pete up there on Smoke Mom Hill. I know you know about Smoke Mom Hill. Uh, the guys up in the wooden barracks and everything they did was secretive. And, uh, you know, they were the quiet guys, the professionals. And uh, that was intriguing to me because, you know, I, I wanted more. I wanted more. And uh, that sounded like that's what I wanted to do. And so that's how I volunteered. Hmm. Uh, no one ever thought I'd get accepted, but I did. I got accepted. You know, what made it so unique at that time, I was 18 years old, weighed 126 pounds, five foot four, still growing. But yet still, I was able to get into the Green Beret because they were doing a recruitment at that time. And uh, I didn't drop out. I hung in there. Mm -hmm. How much do you credit those early mornings, that hard working in Northeast Oklahoma to to making it through part of that? Excuse me for that phone there for a minute. No worries. You know, you learn one thing. You learn discipline. Mm -hmm. You learn sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You, you learn to do without, uh, those are values. You, you, you need, you learn to, to suffer. You learn to in, endure the pain. Uh, all these things came from when I was living in the country. The days that you didn't have uh, enough food, but you, you dealt with what you had. And uh, 
you always wanted more, but you know you couldn't get it. So there are times you just suffered and sacrificed. And those were valuable things to me because I learned to endure. I learned to, to, to suffer, to take the pain, uh, and just do what you have to do. And that's the motto I, I use today is do what you have to do. You know, there's no no way out of it. And one of the things I used to tell myself, you know, if you really want something and you love it, you do it. And that's what drove me to uh, Sneaky Pete because, you know, you hear these stories running around the barracks and on posts that these guys, they eat snakes and um, they in the, the boonies and uh, they know karate and all this stuff. I'm a young guy. You know, and all that was intriguing. Yeah, and that's how that's how I got there. You're like, man, I've been eating squirrels, snakes, all of this. It just sounded like something that really drew you into it. Help me with the timeline, Staff Sergeant Morris, if you don't mind. As as you're going through all this training, as you're making it your way through this, where are we in the world, and when does the war in Vietnam get going, and, and you get folded into that? When I. I was in the Green Beret. You know, I went to the Green Beret March in 1961. So I was in an early uh, time. And um, secretly, we had, they had stuff going on. The public didn't know about. They went up a few foreign countries. But specifically in Laos and Vietnam that no one knew of. And uh, they had teams to go over and train uh, it was indigenous personnel. And so at that point, uh, everything was going all right. And I was there for a while because I got there in 61. And then 1964, things started to heat up. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, um, I, my good friend, the first Melon recipient out of Vietnam, Captain Roger Diamond. I was on his team, uh, and I was young, and I got bumped off the team. And when he went to Vietnam, that's when he got the Medal of Honor. But I was on that team and would have went. So, you know, things happen in mysterious ways because if I had been on that team, I might not be here today. Mm-hmm. So that was – I look at it as a blessing, and I don't get mad. You know, when we joke about it, him and I, when we're together. Um, so I see I admire him, and uh, I hope he admires me. I don't know. <laughs> well, but he sir, was my team. Huh? It is a, uh, it's a prestigious uh, fraternity that you are a part of with that incredibly oh, yeah. powerful yeah. blue ribbon that's donned around your neck right now. And you guys are still friends to this day. Tell me a little bit about what those conversations are like. Well, he he always joked about. See, I had hit myself in the knee during the last training exercise, putting putting in a tent peg outside of one of the big CP tents, and I was using an eight pound sledgehammer, and I messed around and bust myself in the knee. And uh, if you ever felt pain, you know the knee can give you quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they were ready to go, and. Uh, I couldn't even hardly walk, and so they had to drop me. And uh, you know, and I used to ask them, "Why couldn't you just wait uh, or take me crippled or whatever?" That, but that wouldn't work. And we, 
He said, yeah, you shouldn't hit yourself in, in the knee with that hammer. You know you what you did. We'll be joking. No, I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> but we joke about it. We're still friends. And I tell him, I said, well, it happened that way. But I say, look, see this? Mm-hmm. I say, you received a Medal of Honor, which is very weird. And I received it also. Incredible. Yeah. Captain but we're Rod good friends. Donlin. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir, Roger. So it's amazing in there, you know, I'm hearing some things in your story and you're talking about early days, 1964, the date uh, of the action for your citation that led to you being awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, sir, is is September 17th, 1969. There's quite a bit of time between those early days and the day of that action. Well, see, what happened is, I don't have nothing to hide. What happened is, after I didn't go with them to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reassigned to 82nd Airborne Division. And when I got the 82nd Airborne Division, I think I wasn't there a month. And we got alerted to go to Dominican Republic uh, for the Dominican crisis. Mm-hmm. So I went there and uh, I stayed in the Dominican uh, Republic for 18 months. And when I got back, I volunteered to go back to the Green Beret. And I got accepted, so I went right back to the Green Beret. And I wanted to go to Vietnam bad, and I kept volunteering, volunteering. And I just couldn't get my turn. So finally, about a year after I was, two years it took, uh, Sergeant Major said, well, they're taking people that's already been there, you know. Just in the Green Beret. So, you know, you're just going to have to wait. So finally, I got orders to go to Vietnam. And that was in 1969. Uh, the reason why I wanted to do my share, because I had lost my two friends, uh, Green Berets, African-Americans in Vietnam. Yeah, we were both, we were close. And uh, I just wanted to do my part. Uh, you know, it's, it's the thing that's, you don't want to be left behind. Mm-hmm. You want to be right up there with the rest. And in their honor, I wanted to go. And I really, I was fighting to go really hard because uh, Jeffers was my buddy. And he had got killed by an IED in Vietnam at that time. Uh, boot trapped in the uh, road. Uh, so I wanted to take his place, but it wasn't possible. So I never gave up on volunteering. I kept begging and begging and getting in trouble, begging and begging, but finally I got to Vietnam. And I got to Vietnam and I was assigned to the Field Special Forces Group. Sir, would you mind telling me their two names? Can you tell us their two names, your two friends? Uh, Chester D. Townsend and and, and Specialist Jeffress, J.E. You felt you yeah. just felt the need right in their honor. You know, they're not here anymore. I need to get over that. I need to honor my friends. I need to do my part here. Right. Uh, Townsend was uh, KIA first. And believe it or not, they both went the same way with IED in the road. Mm. You know, and uh, in fact, I had Townsend's car that I was keeping when he got KIA in Vietnam. That's how close we were. And Jeffers was from Arkansas, and we were pretty close together. 
uh, I forget what part, but we talked about rice all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I just weren't, you know, they were my buddies. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons I, I just wanted to do my share. I mean, you know, if they can do the sacrifice, so can I. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, it's an old thing, honor, duty, country. And uh, we don't look at the other stuff. We look at that, what we have to do. This is our mission. This is our job. Mm-hmm. Incredibly powerful. The day of the action that leads to that Congressional Medal of Honor hanging around your neck, sir, and I know an incredible honor for you, is September 17th, 1969. I have... Uh, the audio pulled up from the day that uh, President Barack Obama awarded you that Medal of Honor in uh, March 18th, 2014. Sir, if it's okay with you, I'd love to just play the audio uh, of as they read your citation uh, in front of President Obama in 2014. Is it okay with you if we play that? Very good. All right, let's take a, a little two minutes here. and We're going to listen to uh, the award ceremony for Staff Sergeant Melvin Morris being awarded the Medal of Honor on March 18th, 2014. Sergeant First Class Melvin Morris distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving as commander of a strike force drawn from Company D, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces during combat operations against an armed enemy in the vicinity of Chi Lang, Republic of Vietnam on September 17, 1969. On that afternoon, Staff Sergeant Morris's affiliated companies encountered an extensive enemy minefield and were subsequently engaged by a hostile force. Staff Sergeant Morris learned by radio that a fellow team commander had been killed near an enemy bunker and he immediately reorganized his men into an effective assault posture before advancing forward and splitting off with two men to recover the team commander's body. Observing the maneuver, the hostile force concentrated its fire on Staff Sergeant Morris's three-man element and successfully wounded both men accompanying him. After assisting the two wounded men back into forces lines, Staff Sergeant Morris charged forward into withering enemy fire with only his men's suppressive fire as cover. While enemy machine gun emplacements continuously directed strafing fusillades against him, Staff Sergeant Morris destroyed the positions with hand grenades and continued his assault, ultimately eliminating four bunkers. Upon reaching the bunker nearest the fallen team commander, Staff Sergeant Morris repulsed the enemy retrieved his comrade, and began the arduous trek back to friendly lines. He was wounded three times as he struggled forward, but ultimately succeeded in returning his fallen comrade to a friendly position. Staff Sergeant Morris's extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. And then from there, President Obama, uh puts that medal around your neck. So take me back to that day first. We'll go back to September 17th, 1969, but on March 18th, 2014, to stand in that room, to have those dignitaries there, to have the president there to be a part of that. Take me back to that day, sir, and just what that feeling was like. You know, it's, it's one of the words I learned, surreal, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's something you just can't imagine. And, and waiting on the time to get there, because, see, I was notified about that May of 2013. And uh, I had to wait uh, uh, almost a year to get a water to melt and to keep it quiet, keep it 
secret, keep confidential or whatever. Uh, so I waited that year, holding it in, and no one would believe me anyhow. So that's the thing about it. But once I got there to the White House, uh, you hold your nerves together, but you're nervous. It's, it's overwhelming. And you still say, can't believe it's happening. Because I never pursued the Mellow Monitor, period. Not none. I never even thought about it. After I retired from the military, that was it. And I always considered you got nation's second highest decoration. That's enough. That's enough. And lo and behold, I'm being awarded the Medal of Honor. And it was very nervous being up there. But, you know, um, President Obama's pretty cool. And so he know how to handle stuff. Mm -hmm. And we were talking and joking while he's doing it. And uh, he got the mail on. And uh, it's, it's, it's still uh, very hard to imagine right now. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am. And once I received the medal, I uh, said, you know what? You got a lot of weight to carry. It's going to be a big load. You got a lot of work to do, which I'm not afraid of work. But, you know, it's going, I won't be able to imagine what's going to come next. And it's been a whirlwind, but I've been hanging in there. Yeah. But you're such a, it's such an honor that you can't just sit back on. No, you got to get up and move and you got to represent, as I say, mm. and best foot forward. And, you know, coming from the type of life that I had and, uh, and lack of all the education that I should have had, uh, this is one of the things I told myself, you know, you go out and talk to these students and tell them don't do as I did, no matter what. If you have to crawl to the schoolhouse in mud, snow, and dirt, you do it. It's that important because those high school gives you the basics to further your, your life, not your education, your life. You got the basics to go into the military if you do well, but it gives you that chance to go to college and keep going. And if you drop out of school, all that's gone. All that's gone. There's going to be nothing but work is no problem with work, but you will never get the work that you want. Some people luck up, but you don't want to go on luck. You want that education. And you feel good about yourself when you have a alma mater. I, you know, I'm lucky. My friends still accept me as being there from day one to day 12. So I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. But uh, education is just too important to, to play with. Uh, you, you just, you got to do it. Mm -hmm. It's not compulsory, but, you know, you make it compulsory. Mm -hmm. You get it done. I want to come back and talk about just that that load, that work, that responsibility. I know that every chance you have to to pin that back around your neck again comes with the weight of what it is. And and for for the thousands who have been awarded the medal and those who we've lost uh, as they were awarded or or even since being awarded. But I, I want to go back to September seventeenth, nineteen sixty nine, and 
You guys come across this enemy minefield. You're engaged by hostile forces, and and you essentially find out that one of the commanders, the other commander, you know, has been killed in action, and you know that his body is there, and and there is this incredible spirit that is the United States of America that President Kennedy said we will bear any burden, pay any price for the defense of liberty. And that means we will go get our own. And in that moment, you guys had that decision to go get your own. Seems to me like to you, it was a no brainer, sir, to go in and get him. Take me back into that moment, please. Well, you know, yeah, you have a, you think about that quite often. In fact, I do. And uh, it was just, when you're in combat, things are going to happen. They're not there. You don't. You you're not in control of that. And uh, during that day, uh, we we did a lot of combat action. We did, and uh, I had quite a bit of combat before that time. And uh, I knew what I had to do. You know, as a combat leader, because I was a uh, advisor to a company, and and uh, the men that I advised, they had to respect me, and they did. And so on that day, September 17, 1969, we took it like another ordinary mission, right? Doing what you have to do. And so we moved out that morning, and we moved forward, yeah, thinking nothing was going to really bad really happen, you know, because you get lost in, in action, you know. And so we hadn't had no fierce action for quite a while, you know, a few skirmishes. And we were close to the border. And I think uh, we kind of underestimated the enemy that close to the border. And uh, once we got up into the position that where we were at, uh, uh, they were forward. And I was taking precautions, right? I said, you know, we're going near the border, and I don't see people. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's very wrong. And I always tell a story about the lady in the village and nobody around. And I said, that's hot. One person, and, and you know, where's everybody at? They were gone because they knew what's going to happen next. And I, I said, I'm a country boy, so I can read the signs, right? Mm-hmm. And moving forward, I learned to look for things on the ground. Because I used to track a rabbit till he couldn't run no more. So I'm looking on the ground, I find uh, safety pins. And they were fairly new. And I said, this side. This is not good. And that's a sign that's enemy activity. Mm. So I reorganized my unit, my company, because I was have to get ready for the fight because I felt like it was coming. Yeah. And so I made a heavy weapons section right quick and got the people I count on up front. And I had an assistant. He was a young American. Um, his name was Lyons. And uh I hadn't had no time to serve with him. Uh, so we call him Ben Ben. He's a good guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I say, well, I got to take care of him. I got to make sh- I had been in combat for two uh, two years. So, you know, he had been maybe two months. 
And so you know, that's part of my responsibility. So I gave him the rear, the rear company to stay rear as we moved out. <clears throat> and then when we moved out, I never heard a gunshot or nothing. That's how far apart we were. I didn't even hear a rifle or something. But I got a call on the radio. And uh, my captain said, uh, <clears throat> the team started to been killed. Uh, and I'm wounded. Uh, several times, and uh, I said, "Well, I'll, I'm on my way. I'll get there as soon as I can." And on the way, the VC, MVA, whoever uh, dressed in black with the white pith helmets on and everything, they were trying to bait me awake. And I said, "I'm not that dumb. I'm not going to fire on you. I'm not going to take chase. I'm not going to enough. I got a mission accomplished." That's to get to where they're at. Mm -hmm. So that was a no-fight day for them because I think they won't sucker me into an ambush anyhow. So I got to the point where they were at. And by chance, I was so accurate getting to where they were at, I came up to the point almost exactly where his body was at. Mm. But there was no shooting at that point. So I got to his body and um, I checked him and uh, made sure he was KIA. He wasn't alive, in other words, make better words. Mm -hmm. And um, I was raised a Catholic. So I I really prayed over Miss Ladd's rights. So we learned that. And when I did that, it looked like the woods opened up. That was bullets coming from everywhere. And so I had to back out of here real quick. It couldn't do nothing with him. I talked to the captain. I told him <clears throat> that he had to be medevac. He had to get out. He was telling me, oh, no, I'm going to stay in this. I said, no, 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 no. You wounded too many times. You can't. Uh, he was very courageous, Captain Jack Daniels. As, you know, I used to mess with him with Jack Daniels. Uh -huh. <laughs> Captain Daniels is his name. But he was shot in the mouth, shot in the arm, shot in both arms. Uh, well, all over. Mm -hmm. So finally got him up. So um, Sergeant Lyons was to tell a sergeant he had been wounded before them because he kicked the landmine and fresh up these old mines from way back when that it, uh, they were um, anti-disturbance mines. So if he kicked it, then it detonated. He didn't have to step on it. And uh, he was in bad shape and um, almost lose his leg, almost lost his leg. So he, he had to get out. The captain had to get out. So that left me, the team sergeant's KIA. So they left me in uh, special lines. And, you know, I talked to him. I said, you stick rear and you keep control of the troops. I'm got to go in and get my team sergeant body. If anything happened to me, you leave me. Mm. You pull out the troops if I can't get him out. So I went back in with two volunteers. And I had a Cambodian company. They were good. Uh, and they still stay in touch with me today, some of them, uh, from that time. But I got to his body. Uh, he was a big man. So they both grabbed him. And... We all did drag him out. 
and drag him out, the map case come out of his pocket. In that map case, you got coordinates, you got codes, uh, you got locations, positions, whatever, names of people, whole nine yards. And I said, I have to go back. Um, but what happened, I got to back up a little bit. When we went in to get him out the first time, had two volunteers. They were both shot right away. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed both of them and I got them out of there. And I got more volunteers to go back in. And then we got back in the second time we, we got his body out. But uh, I'm all, all over the place. But during that time, we trying to get his body out. I had uh, instructed all my troops to form a, a firing line and level the place. And they did. And the fire came back so heavy, they had to leave the positions. So we didn't have any cover. And they were firing from bunkers. And, mm-hmm. and believe me, they really returned the fire. Mm-hmm. But I ignored that. I still had to go. Mm-hmm. After they ceased firing, we went in. Um, we grabbed the body, bought him out. When we bought him out, the map case fell out of his pocket. So I said, okay, decision time. We got that part accomplished. Now you got to go back and get the map case. There's Because there's so much intel in there, right? It could really if, compromise future things if that was left there. If, if it's one hour older, it's too much. Because mm-hmm. they really knew how to um, use intel against us. And I, so I told uh, uh, Ben, I said, Ben, I got to go back in. I say to get that map case. If I go down, you pull out. Don't try to come and get me. You're the only one left. And you got to pull out with the troops. And, and you in charge almost of a whole battalion. You got to pull these troops out. See, we had a battalion with three companies, and he's the only one left to handle three companies. So I go in, and I go in with my interpreter, his name was Child Long. And um, we get to the map case. The enemy popped up, shot me in the chest. I got angry at Lom because we had a chance to take him out. But Lom was my interpreter, but he couldn't shoot. And um, later on, I understood that. Uh, he wasn't. He had been in combat quite a bit. But everybody just can't squeeze the trigger right away. And he hesitated, and I got shot in the chest. He got the map case. He was gone. And now I'm down. I took the enemy out. Now I'm down with a, a hole in my chest. And uh, I had already given Ben instructions to pull out if I go down. So I said, well, I'm here for the duration. So I scoot up to a palm tree to check my wound in my chest, which is a, was a whole, a whole seal right there. Yeah, sort of right between, kind of by your chest and your armpit, kind of where your arm yeah. comes in. Yeah, see that hole? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, well, I got to plug this hole and I checked myself uh, sucking chest on best I could. And I knew it hadn't come out through my back. Mm-hmm. So I said, I can survive this. Just, just close this up. And I saw bubbles coming out. So I stopped the bubbles and I'm good to go. They're trying to, they're still trying to take me out. They're still shooting. 
I'm behind the tree and I can feel bullets hitting that tree. I did not realize that they did hit me. They hit me on this arm right here. So a bullet uh, came in there. Uh, so the I same, don't feel... Same, same arm on the chest where you were hit. So right. that side is kind of compromised at this point. See, so anyway, uh, they're still trying to shoot me. I don't know what to do. I got, I had dropped my weapon. I got one hand grenade left. I see the enemy movement over by me. So I grabbed a grenade, pull a pin, throw it. Then I get shot in his hand when I threw the grenade. I saw him flop up, but now I'm shot in the hand. So I'm shot in the hand, shot in the chest, shot in the arm. And I say, well, you got to get to your weapon. Pull a finger off and fight. I say, no, I ain't going to pull a finger off to get your weapon and start fighting. So I roll over, got my weapon the best I could. I screwed it to, to my weapon. I got it. And I fired up all my magazines I had. And I, I, I don't have no, no grenades, no, no ammunition. So it's time to go. And uh, but before that happened, I had called in the Air Force to see if they could drop a, a heavy for me. Mm -hmm. And they said if they did, they would take me out. So that didn't work. So I talked to the Navy. Navy had a little light observation helicopter. They said, well, we can, we don't have any heavy weapons, but we can drop them explosives. That'll give you a chance to break contact. They did that and I broke contact. And I run and I run and I run because I had told them to move out legally. And I think they were surprised when they saw me because I got three bullet holes and I don't know how far I ran till I caught up with them. So they immediately made a stretcher. They called the medevac and got me out of there. So that was the, the make it short, that was the, the action for that day. No need to make it short, sir. I could sit and listen to you tell that story. You take two in. Those two go down. You have to get them out. You go back to get the commander. In the process of that, his map case drops. You get his body out, but you got to go back to retrieve this incredibly important intel. The mission's not over yet. We can't leave it behind. You go back to get that. Your interpreter is able to get it, sprint out of there, but that's in the process where you are then shot. And as you told your men, if I go down, you have to go without me. So they're going up the road. There has to be a point where you're leaning up against that tree. You're shot in the chest. You're shot in the arm. You've been shot in the hand. You got a grenade left and your weapons on the other side. Was there a point where you didn't think you were making it out of there? It, at that point, I didn't think about being killed. Only thing I would think about fight to the end. And that's, People ask me, well, did you think about family or this or that? I did. I, I was locked in on what I had to do. Now I'm in a situation I have to save my life. And I said, I wasn't going to give up until the end. And when I ran out of ammunition, I said, well, okay, you're out of ammunition. You can still get out. Uh, and, you know, I can't find those pilots. <laughs> I don't even know if they exist. Maybe it was my imagination. <laughs> But anyway, I had enough uh, willpower to get out of there and run. And I told myself, run zigzag, run, run, run. And 
you know, sort of in a zigzag motion, so you could just get yourself. Yeah, out. right. They was they had never stopped shooting. Believe mm-hmm. me, never did. And so, but anyway, I was able to get out of there and uh, got medevac. And uh, my day wasn't over with because when the medevac picked me up, uh, got on the helicopter, and there were bodies on the helicopter. And of course, we had been in a big fight, and there were uh, wounded and killed in action on the helicopter with me. And we landed, uh, took off, had to land on a little newer jet where they were fighting pretty good. And I could see it from the helicopter. And the pilot said, well, I got to land here and pick up some more uh, bodies. And I said, you're crazy. And he ain't doing that to me, but I had to. So he landed, they put on some more uh, killing action on the helicopter. And we took off. Yeah, that was nerve wracking, really, because I just got out of this big mess, and I'm landing right, landing right in the middle of a firefight, pick up more bodies. So, you know, good day. Big day, a big day, sir. Uh, really incredible. I'm, I'm sitting here, really an awestruck, listening to you uh, recount this story. It's amazing your incredible service before self and sacrifice for the men that were out there. And then, you know, you're still kind of part of it as, as you're trying to leave the fight. I mean, hurt, injured, you got already killed on the helicopter as well. You know, you're going back in, but we're going back in to get more, we're going back in to retrieve them and bring them out. Uh, really incredible. So when you put that medal on now, when you put that ribbon on now, and you talked about that, that load, that work that you feel a responsibility to continue to do, it must stem from what happened to you on that day? Well, it stems from all the way back to when my two buddies uh, get a supreme sacrifice. So I heard a lot of people say that this smell is not there. So, okay, so I agree. I'm a caretaker of it. You know, but I wear it in memory of all of those that did, gave the ultimate sacrifice and the ones that I knew personally. And I'll never forget them because, you know, there's a lot of suffering and pain and life loss. And for me to be able to sit here and talk to you alive with the melt around my neck, that's a big responsibility. Uh, it's something that you can't take lightly. So if ever when I'm with this melt on, I'm all business. I'm, I'm for real. Yes. Congressional Medal of Honor Society continues to do just amazing work to remember uh, the proud and heroic patriots that wear that medal, those we've lost along the way. How much of an honor has it been for you to work with them and, and to interact with all of the other Medal of Honor recipients and, and to be able to join with them and, and have fellowship with them and, and work uh, on behalf of that incredible organization as well? Yeah, I love it. I love it, and I enjoy working with the students. Uh, yeah, it's very important. And, you know, I get so many letters and stuff, you know, and is how important it is to have a role model. And so and I consider myself a role model. And for, for those that are kind of like down, you know, I try to lift them up, you know, lift them up. Uh, uh, so it's, it's so much going on in the world. They, they need a role model. They need to see people. 
they need to understand that this is what we do. The citation reads, Staff Sergeant Morris's extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Sir, it has been an incredible honor to sit and hear your story today. Thank you so much for your sacrifice to our country, for all that you did, and for all that you continue to do throughout this. We thank you so much. Thank you, my friends. He is Staff Sergeant Melvin Morris, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. I'm Brian Jodas. And guys, what an amazing story. Count ourselves lucky to be able to sit and listen to this hero today. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.